You're listening to Give Me the Bible with Len. Today's program is entitled Crowds. Hello my radio friends. Welcome to today's program. And I'm so glad that you've joined me to hear more from God's Word, the Bible. You're probably intrigued by the title of today's talk and maybe wonder what this topic has to do with the Bible. So, stay tuned. Back in the Medo-Persian Empire was a very powerful king. The Bible names him as Ahasuerus, although he is the same regent who is more commonly known as King Xerxes. Xerxes was very powerful and his kingdom extended from India in Asia to Ethiopia in Africa. Now that's a big empire. In the book of Esther in the Old Testament, in chapter 1, we have a glimpse of the king's power and glory. And let me read to you from Esther 1, 1 through to verse 6. This is what happened during the time of Xerxes, the Xerxes who ruled over 127 provinces stretching from India to Cush, which is Ethiopia. At that time, King Xerxes reigned from his royal throne in the citadel of Susa, and in the third year of his reign he gave a banquet for all his nobles and officials, the military leaders of Persia and Media, the princes and the nobles of the provinces were present. For a full 180 days, he displayed the vast wealth of his kingdom and the splendor and glory of his majesty. When those days were over, the king gave a banquet lasting seven days in the enclosed garden of the king's palace for all the people, from the least to the greatest, who were in the citadel of Susa. The garden had hangings of white and blue linen, fastened with cords of white linen and purple material to silver rings in marble pillars. There were couches of gold and silver on mosaic pavement of porphyry, marble, mother of pearl, and other costly stones. Wine was served in goblets of gold each one different from the other, and the royal wine was abundant in, king, in keeping with the king's liberality. By the king's command, each guest was allowed to drink in his own way, for the king instructed all the wine stewards to serve each man as he wished. <laughs> now, that was really something. First, an exhibition of the king's wealth and power for 180 days, and that's half a year. And then, as a grand finale, a great feast lasting seven days. But then the king decided to show off even further, and summoned some of his attendants to bring into the festival the queen. Now I'm reading from Esther 1 verse 11. The king commanded to bring before him Queen Vashti, wearing her royal crown, in order to display her beauty to the people and nobles, for she was lovely to look at. 
But when the attendants delivered the king's command, Queen Vashti refused to come. Then the king became furious and burned with anger. So here was the situation. It was near the end of the seven-day feast. The guests had no limitations put on them to restrict their feasting and drinking, and I suspect most of them took advantage of the free wine and were probably drunk or near drunk, as was possibly the king. The king wanted to further impress his guests by displaying the queen, who was obviously very beautiful. It is probable that the queen heard all the loud and lewd talking and shouting coming from the party, and she was probably disgusted at what she heard. When summoned by the king, she refused to come, because it was beneath her sense of self-respect and dignity to lower herself as a display piece to that drunken crowd. As a result of her refusing to obey the king's command, she was deposed and later was replaced by another queen, Esther. The many times I've read this story, I've never realised that Queen Vashti was a woman of substance. She was an example for people who might be pressured to do something that is against their principles. She had principles and was not prepared to abandon them just to please the king and the by now drunken rabble crowd at the party. If Vashti was alive today, I would commend her for standing up for her principles, despite her subsequent loss of being queen over this vast empire. In short, Vashti stood alone against the wishes of the king and his inebriated crowd. To do that takes guts, real guts. Vashti was not just a human ornament. She was prepared to live according to what she believed, despite the crowd. Going along with the crowd is easy. Standing out in the crowd is a much different matter. Now, such a person was Rosa Parks, who lived in Alabama in the deep south of the United States of America, where racial discrimination and white supremacy was practised. As a child, Rosa was educated at a private school, where she was encouraged to overcome the limits of segregation. In her late adolescence, she married Raymond Parks, a barber and advocate of equal rights. She worked as a seamstress in a department store. On December the 1st, 1955, after a tiring day at work, Rosa Parks took a seat in the designated coloured section of a city bus in Montgomery, Alabama. When the white section at the front filled up, the driver, James Blake, ordered Rosa Parks to relinquish her seat to a white passenger, as was the practice. She refused, 
and was arrested and jailed. Civil rights activists organised a one-day bus boycott the day of her trial. With its success, they founded the Montgomery Improvement Association and began a city-wide bus boycott, led by a new local minister, Dr Martin Luther King Jr. The boycott lasted 381 days, made to work by African-American citizens, many who made sacrifices of time and energy to walk to work and other destinations. As they comprised the majority of bus passengers, the boycott greatly reduced the profits of the bus company. Eventually, a ruling by the United States Supreme Court in a related case declared bus segregation unconstitutional. The boycott was important for mobilising people in the civil rights movement, both in the Deep South South, and on a nationwide basis right across the United States. Like Vashti, Rosa was one who did not accept the status quo of the many and stood up, or in this case sat down for what she believed, despite all kinds of opposition. Although she was fined for her act of defiance, the outcome of her actions was that she was a heroine and changed the course of history for those who came after. Crowds can be dangerous. Have you ever heard of crowd psychology? It is known as collective behaviour and in some extreme cases as mob hysteria. Following the crowd is easy because, as the psychologists call it, doing what the crowd does is seen as good and acceptable behaviour. Did you know that Jesus warned about crowd psychology? What he said relating to this subject is found in Matthew 7 verses 13 and 14. And he was speaking at the time about becoming part of God's kingdom. This is what he said. Enter through this, the narrow gate. For wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction. And many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life. And only a few find it. Jesus presented a contrast in word pictures. Firstly, there are those comprising a small minority who are on a life journey to eternal life. The going is hard and uphill. The road is narrow and the gate is small. This minority group is not prepared to go along with the vast crowd and practice what they believe to be right. The other group is presented to be a vast crowd. The road is broad and easy to travel on. 
Those who travel on this road are on the way to destruction. My friends, in the world of today, the majority, the crowd, have no interest in things of eternal value. They are swept up in pleasure, sport, false teachings, such as evolution, that pervade society continually. Even in the religious world, people have been brainwashed with certain teachings, which have become very popular, although they are false teachings. For example, the Holy Day transferred to the first day of the week, Sunday. The abolition of the Ten Commandments. The secret rapture. The doctrine of an ever-burning hell and the belief that at death the spirit continues to live, although the physical body is dead. These are examples of false, popular teachings that have become accepted by the many. There are some very large religious organisations with millions of adherents who feel comfortable where the people fit in with the crowd in those organisations that teach false doctrines, and many of them totally out of synchronisation with the Bible. So, beware of crowds. Beware of popular beliefs. Beware of crowd psychology. Because everybody else is doing it, does not make it right. Crowd psychology was seen at work during the life of Jesus just before his crucifixion. Although Jesus had taught many people and crowds followed him practically all the time, where were those who professed to believe in him at the trial before Pilate, the Roman governor? I'll read to you from Luke 23 verses 13 to 20, and this is what's recorded. Pilate called together the chief priests, the rulers and the people, and said to them, You brought me this man as one who was inciting people to rebellion. I've examined him in your presence, and have found no basis to your charges against him. Neither has King Herod, for he sent him back to us, as you can see. He's done nothing to deserve death. Therefore I will punish him, then release him. With one voice they, this is the crowd, cried out, Away with this man! Release Barabbas to us! Barabbas had been thrown in prison for an insurrection in the city and for murder. Wanting to release Jesus, Pilate appealed to them again. But they kept shouting, Crucify him! Crucify him! Even the Roman governor, Pilate, caved in to the crowd. There was not one person who was brave enough to shout, He is innocent! Being part of a crowd is generally being part of what is popular. The human instinct is to have companionship and to be part of a group. When someone is part of a group, there's a certain satisfaction in group thinking, if one would call that, 
takes over. You don't need to think much in a crowd. But that's a problem and we're going to have a little break and go on straight afterwards. Before the break, I was talking about crowd psychology and how that you don't have to think much in a crowd. But you know, that's a problem. TV advertising takes advantage of the human desire to associate with others on the same level. Take, for example, a new toy being advertised. One child gets such a toy and shows it to his or her peers. What do then do they do? They have to have one too. In the scientific world, crowd psychology can be very ugly. The crowd psychology in modern times has promoted a belief in that very popular worldview of evolution. Almost as many dollars have been spent on projects involving evolution as the millions of years quoted in support of the theory. And I want to add here, that evolution is a theory and not a fact. The theory cannot be proved, although such presenters as David Attenborough 
present evolution as factual. Any scientist, like some I've read about, who changes camps, so to speak, who abandons evolution and supports creation, becomes ostracised almost overnight. Many creation scientists who do excellent science are often denied opportunity to publish in the main science magazines such as Nature. Many lose their status in the scientific community and others lose their grants for research. To be associated with what is popular is often being associated with error rather than truth. Crowd psychology is dangerous. It's easy to be swept up in the excitement and easy to forget that you as an individual need to be logical and maintain your integrity and moral standards. Crowd psychology can cause explosive happenings such as when the Apostle Paul was in Ephesus. You see, Paul preached the gospel message and explained that God was a living God and that idols and images were totally ineffective and, of course, were inert. There was a major industry in that city where a silversmith employed workers and they made little statues of Artemis otherwise known as the goddess Diana. These images were sold to tourists and the locals who believed the large statue of Diana held powers affecting fertility and love. Because those things were condemned in Paul's teachings, Demetrius, the silversmith, began a campaign to protect his business. He told his workers of the flow-on effects of Paul's preaching passionately told them that they would be out of a job and the silversmith business would have to close down if people believed what Paul had taught. The workers, and probably Demetrius as well, went out into the streets and began shouting at the tops of their voices, Great is Diana of the Ephesians! The story, if you'd like to read it yourself, is recorded in Acts chapter 19, from verse 23 onwards. Verse 29 says, Soon the whole city was in an uproar. The people seized Gaius and Aristarchus, Paul's travelling companions from Macedonia, and rushed as one man to the theatre. Now I've actually seen a Roman theatre. It is circular in shape and there are stands surrounding a kind of oval in the middle. Major events occurred in such places like this back then, things like gladiatorial battles, assemblies of troops for battle, persecutions, assassinations, and anything where a large crowd could witness public events. Many Christians lost their lives when hungry lions were let loose in these theatres. Now, I'll read to you from Acts 19, verse 32. The assembly was in confusion. Some were shouting one thing, some another. 
Most of the people did not know why they were there. A crowd can form in a few minutes, and people get caught up in the excitement, although they mightn't know what it is they get excited about. Now, normally, I am a calm, fairly thoughtful person. When I was much younger, a group of young people invited me to join them to go into the city that's the city of Adelaide, on New Year's Eve to celebrate the incoming of the new year. There was a group of us on the back of a utility. At traffic lights, some of our group shouted to passing pedestrians and motorists, Happy New Year! Getting caught up in the occasion, it wasn't long before I found myself doing the same. You see, crowd psychology was at work. The main point I want to share with you today is what the majority do and believe may not be right. In fact, I'd like to suggest to you that what the majority believes is probably wrong. The problem is that people accept what the majority believes simply because the majority believes it. There's not much research, testing and examining that goes on into majority beliefs. The Australian Broadcasting Commission has produced an excellent television series called The Checkout. It was designed to make consumers aware of some of the tricks involved in advertising and marketing. One of the main points the program brought across was that it is wise not just to accept things on face value, because if you do, you might get caught. And here's an example. Let's say a supermarket puts up a price tag on a product it wants to promote. Let's say the product is packets of washing powder. The sign says two for $11.99. People's natural reaction to this would be, hmm, that's a bargain. But don't realise that the price of one packet is $5.35. Less than half of the advertised 2-4 price. In a spiritual sense, involving what you believe, it is a sad mistake to go along with majority opinion. You need to check things out for yourself. If you go to church and the minister says, the Bible says such and such, check the references in your Bible. You might be surprised that the Bible version and the minister's version might be quite different. Well, sad to say, it's time to stop. But I leave you today with a warning. Don't just believe majority opinion. Check for yourself before making any personal commitment. <laughs> 